Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stratt. And on this show, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests, plural, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us to discuss the sobering topic of human trafficking is a former victim, Jasmine Grace Marino, and Deb O'Hara Raskowski, a nurse and delegate uh, to the Permanent Observer Mission of the Order of Malta at the United Nations. She's also a special ambassador or a special advisor to the Maltese ambassador on human trafficking. So, Chris, wh- why do you think we should bring up this topic of human trafficking on Dr. Doctor? Yeah, it is a true pandemic or, or epidemic, you might say, um, that, that's certainly worthy of attention. And it has the ability to affect all of us directly or indirectly. You and I uh, have daughters. That's the easiest way um, to, to see how it could potentially affect us. Although, as we'll learn, it's not necessarily limited to female victims, uh, but it is certainly a public health crisis uh, and, a, and a tragic one at that. And then one of the most important things I think that we can help listeners understand is this is not something that's just on the crime shows on Netflix. You know, this is real. And it, as we're going to learn from our guest, it happens in our backyards and in our, in our very comfortable bubbles where we think terrible things like this can't happen. Um, and so listeners need to be tuned into this because it could affect them directly or indirectly. Um, and it's something that is really worthy of our attention. You know, one of the most um, remarkable statistics for me as someone in healthcare, and for any of our listeners who may be in healthcare, is that many, many of women that are being trafficked, they seek healthcare. Uh, now, sadly, yes. it's often at an abortion clinic, um, but they seek healthcare elsewhere. And if we can just be a little more sensitized to those signs, we might find ourselves in a position to be able to reach out and offer them uh, an escape route that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that's part of um, w- the work that Deb is doing at a, a national and international level that we're going to dive into. I want to point out that this episode is the third in a new irregularly recurring series on survivor stories or doctors learning from patients. Our first one was the seemingly miraculous recovery story from COVID of our young friend Jason Shanks after six weeks on a ventilator. Uh, and then you heard about the challenging and courageous year that Bishop James Conley of Lincoln took off to address his depression and anxiety uh, to bring him back to where he's able to work well as the bishop of that diocese. Not fully cured, but uh, definitely more healed than he was before. And so now we're going to learn from Jasmine, who has healed a great deal from what she uh, went through. And if you want to learn more about her, she has put together a seven-minute video with the help of some professional uh, videographers and producers. It's called Trafficked, Recovered, Redeemed, a Survivor's Story. So if you just search that, we're also going to link it in our podcast notes. Yeah, it's such an important topic and such a moving video. And I'll have to admit, uh, after watching her video, I did a little bit of binge watching. uh, (laughs) And sadly, there's a lot of material. Uh, I think I probably watched 10 or 12 uh, sex trafficking videos where they were each a general theme of a survivor explaining sort of their story. And the, the thing that was most remarkable to me was how similar their stories were. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get that uh, when we talk to Jasmine. Um, but it, it really is remarkable and amazing that these women were able to survive at all when you hear the stories that they're going to share with us. Yeah, one of the words she used on her video that caught me off guard uh, was grooming, which was mm. something I had only heard in the context uh, of children. Uh, but apparently this is uh, common. Uh, the reason this topic uh, came to our our notice was uh, Deb actually spoke to the Catholic Medical Association National Board back in January. Uh, and I, when I heard her, I said, yeah, we got to get her on the show. And she recommended Jasmine. So I think it'll make a great one-two punch. But she told us 71% of human trafficking worldwide is sex trafficking, although the two other major forms 
are for for labor, you know, what we would typically call slavery. Uh, but also a third one, I didn't even think of this one, organ harvesting. I know, like, it sounds wow. like a sounds like a B-rate movie, doesn't it? Oh, it, it's awful. What yeah. she said, $150 billion of illicit profits from using people as commodities. Tom, I have a, a lovely patient and uh, she adopted a young girl, a teenager who uh, ran away, or at least that's what everyone thought. Oh. And it turns out she didn't run away, that she was abducted and then trafficked uh, for a period of years only to escape and recover uh, and return. And then in our practice, we had the pleasure of delivering that daughter's child. But it, it was just a great example of how we don't know what we think we know. I remember I said to her when I met her, you don't seem like someone that's been trafficked. And she said to me, what do you think a sex trafficking victim looks like? <laughs> and I realized I actually have no idea. You know, we have these, these pictures in our mind and these biases, uh, and we need to get past those to actually understand. And I know Jasmine is going to be great at helping us understand that better. And the point you brought up earlier, uh, Deb put a number to it. She said 88% of trafficking victims seek medical care while they are being trafficked. So to get to the, the meat of the show, we have to pass through the medical trivia question of the day first. And the category here might seem surprising, but it's fractures. Because sadly, fractures are a part often of these women who are trafficked because of of violence to them. So there was a 2013 study in the medical journal, The Lancet, that looked at 3,000 consecutive women attending 12 fracture clinics in four different countries, in India, US, Canada, and in Europe. So out of these 3,000 women, two-part question, one, how many of these 3,000 went there because of intimate partner violence? And the second is, how many of those women were even asked if they were a victim of intimate partner violence? The answers might surprise you, but we'll be back with more after the interviews with Jasmine and Deb here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We have with us the first of our two guests, and that is Jasmine Grace Marino. Talking about human trafficking, Jasmine is a survivor of sex trafficking and drug addiction. She's an effective keynote speaker, participates on panels, facilitates trainings, workshops, and groups. She's spoken on panels at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in New Hampshire and at two side panels for members of the United Nations in New York. She's also worked with our other guest, uh, Deb O'Hara Roskowski, who's going to be on in a, a little bit after Jasmine tells her story. Jasmine, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Oh, we're happy that we're happy that you could join us. You know, uh, I was in, just uh, taken by your video, as I know all of our listeners will be, and I referenced it in my conversation with Tom when we started. But uh, you start your video by saying uh, that Americans have a misconception that sex trafficking is not happening here, and Tom and I talked a little bit about that, but maybe you could help our listeners understand exactly what you mean when you say that. Yeah. So the work that I've been doing in the anti-trafficking movement for almost about 10 years now, people in the early years, for sure, were, were shocked that sex trafficking is happening. Nowadays, people are more aware and it's more in the news and we're more educated about it. But still, there are pockets of society and people who just think sex trafficking happens in other parts of the country, other parts of the world, excuse me, um, that it definitely can happen in America. Just because the word trafficking makes them think of maybe Hollywood movies or this yeah. you know, brutal kidnapping um, or people being stuffed in crates or just other things that happen in other countries that can't possibly happen in America. And especially when they see me speak and share my story, uh, they can't believe that I'm a sex trafficking survivor, right? That I've actually gone through that because to them, I appear so normal looking, right? And I guess it just blows their mind when they can think, wow, you, you know, you look like the girl next door. You look like my neighbor. doesn't look like someone that could be trafficked. So. Well, thanks for, you know, opening our eyes because we really don't know what a human trafficking victim looks like. I guess it looks like you or the girl next door, like you said. So Jasmine, in your video, you talk about growing up in a home where you said you didn't have really anybody to look out for you. 
with regard to drugs and alcohol. You trained in cosmetology at a vocational high school. Uh, you were working community college in uh, the area of journalism to, to get a degree. But one night you were out at a club at age 19 and something happened. That's right. What was it? Yeah, um, exactly like you said. Didn't have anyone really helping me, leading me, and guiding me through life. I was very vulnerable, very naive. Um, and the one thing that I needed desperately, like all of us humans, is that love and attention and connection. And that was my biggest vulnerability. And I was at a local nightclub. Um, again, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I was there underage drinking, doing things I shouldn't have been doing hanging out with friends. And I just met a guy who knew some friends. So he wasn't a complete stranger. Mm. And he brought me to the bar and he brought uh. me a drink and $7. That's all he spent. Right. And it impressed me. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, and we just, you know, got together the next day after we exchanged phone numbers and he just had everything that intrigued me. He had a lot of money. He had jewelry, he had a fancy car, dressed nicely. And, at 19, that's impressive. You know, I didn't notice all the red flags. There was plenty there, but I didn't notice them. Or maybe I just overlooked them. Or again, in our culture and society, that stuff. Why don't you stop right there? Because this will help our listeners who have daughters. What were the red flags you should have noticed? Yeah, a lot of times when I speak to middle schoolers or high school kids, I let them know, you know, note to self, don't date the drug dealer, right? <laughs> um if obviously this guy isn't coming from a wealthy family, then and he has all this expensive stuff, something's wrong, literally. Um, and but for me, again, being involved with like hip hop culture and rap, like that stuff is totally glamorized. You don't think anything of it. And coming from the family that I came from, very dysfunctional, a lot of criminal, you know, career criminals and stuff. I, it was normalized. It was accepted. I didn't have a problem with it. But now looking back, obviously, I teach my daughters and my son, you know, very clearly, you don't get involved with people that are doing illegal things. Mm. But Jasmine, did you know he was doing illegal things at the time? Or was it just all the bling that he had? Was that the only red flag at that first meeting? No, he sold drugs on the – that was his main income, sell, selling drugs. You knew that? Yeah, sooner or later, early on, I knew that. I, he didn't have any other women that he was trafficking at the time. I would mm. become the first one. But yes, he was clearly a drug dealer. Jasmine, how tight do you see the connection between uh, drug and alcohol use um, and being a trafficking victim? The link is, is inseparable. Um, there hasn't been one woman that I've met that hasn't gone through sex trafficking without some sort of addiction that accompanies ah. um, it. It's rare to find a woman. I mean, I know, and again... I, I don't want to say this only happens to women, right? Boys, men get trafficked too. But the drug addiction is very closely linked. I've worked with women whose own mothers exploited them first. They were oh. the exploiters because they were addicted to drugs. So mm. this little girl is 12, 13 years old, and the mom's training her for her own drug addiction. Then sooner or later, that little girl becomes addicted. And now she's in, and also, um, you know, ended up being trafficked by more pimps and traffickers throughout her life. So drugs were introduced way before. You know, um, and then as a way traffickers use to control women, they're given drugs. And then never mind, like in my story, as a way to cope with all the trauma from afterwards, that's how I got addicted. But let's go back now. The grooming process. You mentioned that in the video. What was the grooming process and what was drug and alcohol part of it? So I started drinking and drugging early, 12, 13 years old, partying with friends, doing things I shouldn't have been doing, hanging out with older boys, experiencing sexual violence as a teen, right? So it, it was raped at least twice, but I don't remember the details because of the blackouts from the drinking and the partying. And not having anyone to help me process that, carrying it, lots of shame. Um, again, at a nightclub drinking when I met the guy who would be my trafficker, but I never had an addiction at that point. Um, so the whole time I was trafficked, it would have been five years with my trafficker, the grooming process just really, um, he used more manipulation and brainwashing and that coercion, promising me a better life, um, telling me that, why would you want to work in a hair salon? You can own one. Why would you want to go to school for journalism? That's stupid. You know, so making my dreams and goals seem less than what he had in mind. And just really preyed on that, again, need to be loved and accepted, met my family, came home for Christmas, Thanksgiving, just really played that boyfriend role and just sold me a fake dream. And before I knew it, I fell for it. But, you know, the best thing he did 
in what traffickers always do is make you believe you chose to be the prostitute. Because if they can coerce you and manipulate you enough to make you believe you chose it, you'll stay longer, right? Because now it's my fault. And I made this bet I have to sleep in it type of deal. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just trying to break you down emotionally, mentally, spiritually. They're trying to beat the humanity out of you to break you down, to build you back up into a product, right? Because they don't see you as a human. They mm -hmm. see you as a product. So they're going to take as much away as possible from you so they can groom you and shape you into what they need to make the most money. You know, Jasmine, I know when people watch your video and other videos, uh, or any, any, uh, any work on abuse and domestic violence, it's so easy to say, well, all of these points, she could have just walked away. You could have just gotten in the car and driven away, but it's pretty clear that you couldn't. Help our listeners understand what it is that was holding you. There were no chains on your wrist. But what was what was holding you captive? Again, man, that brainwashing and that manipulation had such a hold on me. I try to help people understand it's like coming out of a cult, right? It's mm. in the mind. I was in mental and emotional bondage. And I did escape from him numerous times. So many times that my parents stopped helping me take my bags in because my father mm. knew as soon as he came back up the driveway, I'd go right back. Um, so... Oh. I tried to escape, but it was at the, at the end of it, it was the identity. I believed that's what I was going to be. I believed I was a dirty, no good prostitute. No one would ever love me. And how am I going to go back into normal society after living that life for so long? I felt like there was no way back and that I could never make it on my own. So I just believed the lie. It became my identity and I got stuck for all that time. Jasmine, during your five years of being trafficked, how often did you come in contact with the medical care system? So on our show, we really want to try to point out that. And then later on, Deb's going to help us understand how healthcare professionals can be part of the solution to identifying people that were in your position. I came in contact with the healthcare professionals constantly. My trafficker didn't come with me everywhere when I wasn't working. Um, you know, I was allowed to go out into the community food shopping. I mean, he knew everything that I did, but again, he has such a hold on me that I did what I was supposed to do and I came right back. And he was so busy with all these other women and things that he was doing that I was just allowed to go do what I had to do. And I saw my primary care physician numerous times. I've looked back at my record with a doctor friend of mine who does anti-trafficking work as well. And I visited at least two, three times a month sometimes. And I was constantly self-diagnosing myself, depression, ADHD. Um, I can't sleep, you know, all these types of issues. Cause I was looking to self-medicate, um, had a constant lump in my throat. Uh, I thought it was what I call ajra, right? You call it heartburn uh, because I my body was under so much physical stress that I literally had a lump in my throat. Um, eating disorders. I was so thin. I worked out like a maniac. OCD like type habits. I would go. Did the doctor ever ask you about what you were going through or were there any questions you could have answered about it but chose not to? He more or less was so busy with his back towards me and filling out his little chart. Ah, uh, yes. But the computer. the nurse practitioner was better because she would sit down and she would just cross her legs and she would look at me in the face and have a conversation. And mm. she would ask me questions and genuinely care. And while I didn't have the courage to tell her I'm a prostitute, you know, because obviously I didn't have the trafficking language to say I'm a trafficking victim, but I wouldn't ever admit I was a prostitute. But she knew I was in a domestic violence type relationship. And I did get referred to a DV clinic in that hospital, which I went once and I saw that counselor. And again, while I wasn't ready to articulate and admit everything I was going through, she gave me some tools for my tool belt. And mm. that's what I try to help um, practitioners understand is that you never know where you're meeting this victim on their journey. And as long as you can come to them and if you have a sense that this is what they're going through, offer some resources, be non-judgmental, be safe, be supportive, let them know that you're there no matter when they come back. It just and give them some tools. You know, let them know there's a better way. It doesn't have to be this way. It just it builds hope. And it's just such a long process. Well, Jasmine, it may be impossible to answer, but as you think back through those interactions with healthcare providers, 
can you can you tell us what could have been done? What could have been different that you think maybe would have changed the direction? If they had just maybe again, instead of tagging me as a DV victim, maybe just using some language that I could understand, you know, like saying maybe on some kind of intake form or throughout some kind of conversation, have you ever exchanged sex for money or shelter or drugs? You know, um, just being blunt and asking those kind of questions. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. And if you had said yes to that, what would you have hoped would have come next? I don't know. It depends on where I would be in the journey. You know, some days I was flying high, right? I had made maybe a thousand dollars that day. I'm 20 something years old, driving a Mercedes Benz. I'm living the dream. Okay. And then other times I'm completely broken, beaten down, desperate for help. Know that I have to get out of this, but I can't. It, It all just depends on where you're at in the journey. There were times in my trafficking situation that Therapists have told me I had to talk myself into thinking that this was a great idea and that everything he promised me was going to come true because otherwise I would have committed suicide. There were just Mm. so many hopeless moments that I I wanted to open the car door on the highway and and fall out. You know, it was terrible. So there was moments where I really believed everything he told me is going to come true and this is great. It's such, such a lot psychological bondage. It's unexplainable. Jasmine, I think this is a good point to uh, take a pause in your in your story because now we can have you interact with you and Deb from the macro to the micro and see how the work Deb is doing intersects with the work that you're doing because you're, you're both necessary. So we'll be back with the longer part of our interview here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back for the second part of our interview. We now have joining us, Jasmine is still here. We now have Deb O'Hara Roskowski. Deb was a, and still I guess is, a critical care nurse with a bachelor's, master's in business administration, master's in theology uh, with emphasis in uh, bioethics. She worked over 30 years uh, clinically as a nurse, but now she's a delegate and special advisor to the ambassador on human trafficking for the Order of Malta's mission to the United Nations. So in her work, she focuses on human trafficking uh, and the global refugee crisis, and she's founded a group, GSO, Global Strategic Operatives for the Eradication of Human Trafficking. Just a small goal, yes. (laughs) She has plenty of time to work. Well, she's devoting her time to it. She conducts trainings to healthcare systems on how to identify victims and take appropriate actions, something we were just learning about from uh, Jasmine. Deb, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Deb, we're so glad that you could join us in this important conversation. You know, just before the break, uh, Jasmine was explaining to us about how she she thinks maybe healthcare workers could have made a difference. But let's continue that idea of uh, we know from the statistics, and I think you can share some great ones with us, that we as healthcare workers are going to encounter these women. How do we know what to say and how do we know how to approach them in a way that maybe will be heard and will make a difference? Well, that's a great question, Chris. And, and I'd like to say that, you know, for GSO, Global Strategic Operatives, what our goal is for the training is to train healthcare providers on identification and how to identify a victim and who, what and who to call for help and how to talk to a victim. That last part, especially what Jasmine was saying, if someone had just asked a blunt question or how do you talk to a victim, we call that clinically trauma-informed care. And that's an approach that assumes that an individual is more likely than not to have a history of trauma. And in a trauma-informed approach, you're building a connection with the patient and seeking to understand what life experiences they've had and what's happened to them instead of making assumptions or, uh, or attaching a ju- judgment call. So a very practical example would be a doctor comes in with the white coat on and comes in and says, hello, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and this is what I'm going to do for you very authoritative, very different, that clams up the victim typically as opposed to comes in through the door, takes off the white coat. Hi, my name is Chris. 
I'm here to, you know, hear your story. Can I ask you a few questions or can you tell me what's going on with you? It's a whole different approach. Mm. So it's, um, we really have to have a cultural paradigm shift in from the time that I was nursing. And I, I, I see you. Yes, Tom, you're nodding your head as well. But, you know, when I worked in the ER, we would see someone come in for the ER dressed cladly or, or whatever and, and, and automatically, automatically think it was a prostitute and have judgment on it on him or her mm-hmm. and or a man come through seeking drugs we never thought in our heads is someone forcing her to dress like that or is someone forcing him to take drugs etc so there's really needs to be a, a full uh, cultural paradigm shift and uh and, and Deb, when you say trauma informed care mm-hmm. what types of trauma are you referring to because when i hear trauma i think physical trauma There is a variety, a myriad of different trauma. Good question. And um, so as Jasmine said, she was often um, mistaken or taken as a a DV, a domestic violence uh, victim. Uh, There's that type of trauma, but there's internal, external trauma. There's natural natural trauma when people go through the fires in, in California uh, displacement. Um, the trauma can be, it, it's very specific for everyone, truly. And, and it has the, um, the PTSD that's associated with it. The triggers are all very specific to that trauma and very unique. Some people may go through an earthquake and be devastated and lose their whole family. And then another one may have gone through it and just gotten shaken up and and maybe arrived at the corner store safely away from the epicenter. And that one has worse PTSD than the one that lost the whole family. It really um, it really is a person personalized type of trauma to everyone. So the work that you're doing, uh, help me understand, help us understand the, the difference between what you're doing through the UN. And what your company, you know, GSO is doing, or are they connected? Oh, yes, they're very connected. Um, I started this as a delegate of the United Nations with the mission of um, Malta Mission. And um, so just for a little bit of background, it was almost 10 years ago, I moved to New York City. I was finishing up my master's in theology, and I was actually invited by my last professor asking me what I was going to do with this. And I said, I really had no idea, but somehow I wanted to combine my passion for healthcare, my business skills along the way I picked up, and then my faith had to be a component of it. So I entered almost 10 years ago into the United Nations under an NGO um, umbrella called the Committee to Stop Trafficking in Persons. And a priest actually took me under his wing and showed me everything he knew about the UN. He had been there for eight years. And then a member of the Order of Malta, which I am, I am, uh, called me to tell me that there was a delegate position open in the Order of Malta mission to the UN, and would I be interested? And so when I spoke to them, I said, I'm very interested, but could I please stay in the area of anti-human trafficking work that I've been um, fortunate enough to be in? And they said, absolutely, we'll put, sign, assign you to the third committee, and that includes human trafficking and refugee crisis. So that that is how uh, five six years ago I got um, mm-hmm. under the under the auspices of um, the Order of Malta mission to the UN. During that time, that's when I I met several people and a very influential uh, colleague and friend uh, Kevin Highland helped me, and we both had a, uh, held a high level meeting, and that resulted in global strategic operatives being founded. Well, Deb, how did you uh, and Jasmine come to meet? Um, and how did hearing her story and stories like hers sort of push you in the direction uh, that you're in? You know, Jasmine, as I've told her, she has been nothing but a blessing since I met her and <laughs> a complete gift from God. And um, so we met when I was working to raise awareness still on my NGO committee to stop trafficking in persons with the UN 
And we had an exhibit. It was called The Gift Box. And we actually went around and stood for Global Initiative to Fight Trafficking. And we went around to uh, various places in New England and uh, to raise awareness and give give presentations um, on just basically what exactly human trafficking is. And uh, I met Jasmine, who a uh, Homeland Security uh, friend and colleague, and the three of us actually became a, a little bit of a team that went out, but Jasmine always stole the show. And it was, it was <laughs> and that's when we learned how important our, my GSO organization is a survivor-led um, training. And the survivors are what is the meat of everything because that's why we do what we do. And they're, empower, they're powerful, emotional, and heart-wrenching impact that happens. It sets the stage for them to, any, anyone, to really be open to learn more. So that's why we start off with the survivor because that's why we do what we do. So Jasmine, when's the first time you heard about being part of this big organization? I mean, you were you were stuck down in the daily life. What kind of shift did that make in your thinking about your own life? Um, just incredibly wild that my past that was full of shame could now be helped and used for other people. Like I couldn't believe that I would be able to put that shame aside and be able to share my story. And when women started coming up to me and tears streaming down their face, telling me they have the same story, but they were too ashamed to talk about it. I just kept going and going and going and sharing. And then doors just kept opening and it's really just been an amazing ride and going to the being invited to the United Nations to speak was a pretty big deal. Um, and <laughs> I bet. Yeah. And it was a blizzard so, when I got there. It was awesome. <laughs> so, so I want to bring out something that each of you have mentioned separately. Um, and, and this is, you know, on a Catholic network, a lot of times when we hear about, you know, government agencies reaching out for human trafficking, a lot of them are, you know, supporting, oh, these women need to have abortions. And of course, we don't believe that's a good thing. But you haven't told people, how does that, how did that become part of your story, Jasmine? Yeah. So the abortion situation really was the turning point for me. Um, I had been, like I said, with my trafficker almost about five years. I had actually gone through community college and got an associate's degree in business while I was being trafficked. Wow. He wanted to open up a business as a front to run all of his money through. So once I finished that degree, two years, I felt no accomplishment, no pride. I didn't, you know, I felt so numb. I could care less, but I worked hard for it because I thought to myself, you know what? He can't take this away. So let me work hard for it. Hmm. And so once that happened, it's been almost about five years and I'm pregnant all of a sudden with his child. And I thought it was about time. The baby could save my life, right? I could retire. I could have everything he promised, the business, the home, everything. And I was holding on to that pregnancy because there was in Massachusetts a time limit. Maybe I don't know what how many weeks you know, past, you couldn't get an abortion anymore. But I was holding on to that thinking, if I just wait that long, he won't make me go get it. But time was ticking and he was forcing me. And I knew if I didn't go to the clinic, I would lose that child some other horrible way. Of course, he was violent. You know, he had guns. Of course, I, you know, I did not know what would happen. And so I did what he told me to do. And that devastated me because I thought to myself, wow, to take a life, was just way more than I can handle. You can use and abuse me all these years, but to do that, I got to go and I have to go. Nothing you promise me is going to ever come true, you know, and I, I got to get out of here. And so that was really the biggest turning point for me where I, for the last time made my escape and it, I meant it and it stuck. So, wow. so Deb, what would you like to say about Jasmine's experience and how this informs what you do in GSO vis-a-vis -vis Catholic Church beliefs on human dignity? Oh, you know, my heart aches every time I hear Jasmine tell that part of her story because I just can't imagine being in that position and having, having to go through that. Um, one thing that I would like to say and I'm proud to say is that global strategic operatives follows all the teachings of the magisterium 
and we would not be offering any woman a ride to the abortion clinic or handing out contraceptions. If a woman's found to be pregnant and she's and she's ready to be helped and placed into a safe home, we will love them both, absolutely both of them. Um, I learned a little bit of the hard way when I first entered this um, area of um, you know anti-human trafficking work. And I just thought to myself, you know, I, I, I felt like I was letting God down a little bit because it, I felt I came from being, and this is part of my background, being the, um, uh, the Respect Life Education Coordinator for the Archdiocese of Boston for eight years. So when I got to the UN, this was a hard transition because um, you are in a great minority and the the terminal term terminologies are reproductive health and reproductive rights, aka contraception and abortion. Um, and so this was very very difficult. And so I thought human trafficking. Who can you know who's against, who's against human trafficking? Well, you know what? There's a big group out there that are strongly on hold with women's rights and the the radical feminisms. And, and I'll tell you, that is something that we're, we're coming up against. As we fight human trafficking, people just want to come and get trained. Well, I think they have to be careful who they get trained by. And if they, are, if they want to uphold Catholic and human dignity and sacredness of life for everyone, then they want to make sure what they're being trained on. And um, So, I, Deb, this is yeah. a good time. If there's somebody listening who's part of a hospital care system and they mm -hmm. want to contact you for that training, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, my gosh. They can just go right on our website, global strategic operatives, all one word, all small case dot org. And um, oh, they could contact me, Deb, at global strategic operatives dot org and be happy to um, set up a training for them. And, um, you know, Jasmine, it's interesting. A lot of times in our debates, we hear people say, well, it's it's about a choice and a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. But in a lot of the work that I've done, I find myself saying, I've never heard of a woman choosing an abortion. I usually hear of it choosing them. And your story seems to be such a perfect example of that. I mean, you didn't, you didn't make a choice. You, you had no choice. It's too bad that you didn't have a choice. But how do you how do you react to people when they're saying um, that a woman chose to have an abortion? It's you're right. It's it's not really a choice. It's a lack of choice. There's something something mm -hmm. else is there, and it, just the thought of it, so many different situations for women that they face. But I'll tell you, the abortion is never the answer. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I've even counseled some women that are in trafficking situations or being a, they're addicted and being trafficked, and I've tried to explain to them the damage that comes from the abortion, you know, having done it myself and letting them know that there's just such a better way and that there are more options out there. There are more, oh my gosh, there are way more better options, you know, adoption, mm -hmm. having the baby, you know, and trying to let them know that it's such a beautiful gift, motherhood in itself. Um, oh man, but they don't see that there's any other option at that time because there's so many other outside forces pushing on them that this is it. This is the answer. Get rid of it. So, Deb, offline, you told us that the average trafficking victim requires, what, seven times that they have to either hear or say, you know, about their situation before they will, will seek help. Could you elaborate on that? And how can we as healthcare providers make it less than seven if possible? Okay. So it's on average, you're correct, um, on average going to the hospital seven times um, okay. that they will seek medical care and possibly have interaction with a nurse, doctor, social worker, whoever that will be able to possibly lay some seeds and groundwork for them to make a decision on their own that they want help and they want out. Um, we have to warn them, you know, that, like Jasmine said, it's a process. It's a long process. But it's not very rare, is it, that you all of a sudden, boop, you rescue someone on the first try. So it usually takes seven, seven times. But again, 
it will be the nurse, the doctor, the social worker that's able to lay that groundwork and uh, plant the seed. Even if they say, you know, I have a friend down the street that has been through something similar to you. You don't use the word trafficking, just like Jasmine said. They, they don't consider themselves trafficked. It's been, and wow. could, I, could I call them? Would that be okay? Um, and, and if by chance they're too afraid because they're traffickers with them and they, they control the, the conversation, then you just say, you know, you know where to reach, find help if you want to come back. And mm. so that way you invite them to come back. So that, that way, maybe on an, an occasion that might be less uh, physical trauma, but they make an excuse to go back and they, they somehow reach out for help. Well, as, as we move forward in this fascinating discussion, in, in my area of OBGYN, oddly enough, often uh, prostitution is presented as a pro-woman type of opportunity and topic, if you will, which I've always found rather sickening. It's presented sometimes as a victimless crime, but both Deb and Jasmine, I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Uh, if, if one encounters a woman who is a prostitute, what's the probability that she's there on her own uh, free choice and has decided to pursue this as, a, as an entrepreneurial activity, for lack of a better phrase? Okay, well, I'll go out on a limb and just say it's probably 99% that that woman is being trafficked. And wow. the, the little part of 1% are the people that um, they will argue that they, that's their choice, um, that they want to be a sex worker. Um, we will not even use that term in our training because we don't believe that any young girl dreams and wants to grow up to be a prostitute. There is a, there is a cause for pro the, the there is a cause for this whole human trafficking and the victims who are, are being prostituted, and that is called demand. And um, that is, and if the demand goes away, then human trafficking would go away. But to say that there's uh, sex work going on, and I know that there's healthcare systems that do promote this uh, right to women's sex work, et cetera, but you will not see it, um, us advertise it at all. And I think. Uh, the decriminalization we support for victims, but not for the Johns and the pimps. And if I can explain mm. that, and J Jasmine, you may add to it, please. Um, but the, the decriminalization is so when the victims, usually on a Super Bowl, you'll see so many um, people get arrested. And what happens is it's always the prostitutes. It's, it's never the Johns, it's never the pimps, it's never the purchasers of sex. And so they get criminalized. They get, you know, they get, um, go through the courts and they get a criminal record and that attaches to them forever and they can't buy a house, they can't get own property, etc. This victimizes them further. So we are for decriminalization of the victim, but not so for the, um, the pimp. The, the person that's purchasing the sex, the job. Jasmine, in your very real life experience and in your working with other victims, um, what, what has your experience been in, in that regard? Well, I've never met a woman who's been in the commercial sex trade and liked being there. You know, um, being in the commercial sex trade for eight years, we all, you know, worked in those massage parlors and, and worked in hotels and, and worked all over the place in dangerous situations. A lot of these sex buyers obviously are struggling with sexual addiction. There's some deep brokenness in there. They think it's okay to purchase humans for their sexual pleasure. Um, and I've walked into some very dangerous situations, some very unhealthy, you know, men struggling with some sexual problems. But then on the average, it'd be just your regular old guy, you know, anywhere from the age of 30 to 70 years old, married with children. Uh, most with businesses and homes and families and so forth. And how many homes I went to when the wife and kids weren't there. I mean, it really is, like Deb was saying, the demand that drives this. But the whole time that we were involved, you know, as prostitutes with these sex buyers, we had to sell them a fake story too. You know, it's, it's all fallacy. It's all false. I couldn't tell this sex buyer that I had a pimp and that I had a quota to make. And I just wanted this to hurry up and get over with so I could 
go do the next one. And, you know, I had a lie. I, w- I went to Northeastern University. I was in the five-year program. I went to BC. I went, you know, I had all these stories to tell them. But at the end of the day, sex work should never be called work, right? Because we know sex wasn't created to be work. That's not what it was designed <laughs> for. And it does deep, deep soul damage. You do not mm. come out of the commercial sex trade, whether it's pornography, webcamming, you know, it, I don't care if you call yourself a high-priced escort, whatever it is, you come out with deep soul damage. And the only reason why you're smiling and acting like you like it is because you're being paid for that. It's not mm. real. You know, it's just so fake. And the commercial sex trade also sells you a fake sense of empowerment. It's sold as empowering. Mm. It's sold as a false sense of security. I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to pay my way through college and I'm going to have all this and that. But it never happens. There is so much trauma and so much damage that happens because of it. You you may achieve your goal. Okay, great. But the deep soul damage and the trauma that it does is completely not worth it. In our final two minutes, I want to give each of you a minute to say what the most important takeaway you think should be for our listeners. We'll start with you, Jasmine. I would say the most important takeaway is you know it's happening. It's there. It's Anyone can be a victim. It doesn't have to look like a certain way that you have in your mind. Get educated. Read books by survivors. Watch documentaries that talk about this issue. Have these important conversations with the people in your life, whether they be the kids you have, family members, the men in your life. We are no way man haters. We, you know, no shame and condemnation to any guy who's ever watched porn or been to a strip club. But really, you know the deal now, you know, and have those conversations, do that deep work and really talk about other guys, you know, and let them know why this is a problem and how you can be part of the solution, not the problem. Thank you so much, Jasmine. And so if they want to help, they can get on your website, globalstrategicoperatives.org. Deb and Jasmine, thank you for being with us on this episode of Dr. Doctor. God bless you and your good work. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and seasoned listeners know that it's time for the answer to our episode's medical trivia question. Take it away, Tom. Yes. Well, as Jasmine alluded, uh, many people in her former situation are thought to be victims of domestic violence. And whether or not they are, they are a victim of violence, often getting fractures. And so in the study of 3,000 consecutive women attending 12 fracture clinics in three continents, out of those 3,000, how many of them stated that they were a victim of domestic violence? 49 out of 3,000, or almost 2%. But only one in seven of them was even asked whether domestic violence could have played a role. So as was clearly pointed out, we need to have this in our realm of possibilities as uh, medical professionals. And my eyes have been greatly opened by this episode, Chris. What about yours? Yeah, just just remarkable. I mean, just listening to Jasmine, a real person telling a real story. And we didn't even have time to get into what an amazing life she leads now and, and such a stark contrast to the life that, that she led then. So what um, are your three top takeaways from this packed episode, Chris? Yeah, I think uh, not necessarily in order, but certainly the one that comes to mind right off the bat is that this concept that anyone can be a victim of human trafficking, anyone, that there's not a certain look, there's not a certain socioeconomic status, uh, there's not a certain race, not necessarily even a certain gender, but anyone can be a victim. And this really represents the complete abandonment of the human person. Um, Secondly, uh, you know, if we're going to speak to people that are in this position, We've got to do it in a way that they can understand. And we can't use lofty terms like sex trafficking. You know, I think Jasmine gave a great example for healthcare workers to say, uh, have you ever been in a position where you had to sell sex for money uh, or for food or for drugs um, in a way that they can clearly understand? That's non-judgmental. That's offered uh, sincerely. Uh, and then I think lastly, and the one that really speaks to me as a father of two daughters is uh, when she said, no young girl grows up dreaming of being a prostitute. Uh, the idea that sex is not work uh, and work is not sex. There's no such thing as a sex worker. Um, that these women are being trafficked. It involves violence and force and coercion. 
um, and uh, they, they deserve our prayers and they deserve our work to get this, this problem solved. That reminds me of a, an international public health meeting I attended even 30 years ago in the early 90s when they talked about the term commercial sex worker. I'd never heard it before. And it sounds like many in public health uh, are propagating this evil of human trafficking by trying to protect something that is really evil. Well, that plus the victimization of the criminalization of the victim, the prostitute is the victim in this case. But but I agree with you. I mean, in OBGYN circles, certainly it's considered in, in some people's view to be pro-woman, to be advocating for prostitution and, and a woman's right to do that, so to speak. Uh, and I think we heard very clearly from Deb and Jasmine that virtually all women in this position are in one way or another being trafficked. And on that note, we thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps other listeners find us. You can find this and all of our episodes at our website, drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment right here with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.